Welcome back to Help Teach, and to part two of my 13th episode, opening off season two. Welcome back. The guest that I have with me today, continuing our conversation from last time, is Dr. Jamie Borisov. Jamie, thank you very much again for your time. You're welcome. It's great to be here. I really enjoyed chatting with you in part one. So part two today, I want to dedicate to a question that we got from Gracie. One of my audience members reached out and mentioned that they wanted to know more about para-sport and the Paralympics. It's something that's always interested them. They have some family that have done it, but don't really know much about it themselves. So that's exactly where I want to kick it off today. Can you just tell us a little bit about your experience, first of all, with uh, para-sport and the Paralympics? Sure, I'd love to. After my car accident that we talked about uh, previously, when I was 19, I was very quickly introduced to wheelchair basketball. Mm. I was a hockey player and a baseball player growing up. In fact, when I was 19, when I had my car accident, I was actually playing baseball that summer, uh, still still playing um, amateur baseball. So I was an athlete all my life and played team sports. In rehab, at GF Strong, as many of us uh, know very well in this part of the world, um, our local rehab center, they do a great job introducing people to different activities. At GF Strong, there was someone who was back for his outpatient um, rehab, been in a wheelchair for several years, was a local wheelchair basketball player, and he had his own car. Dave Schneider was his name, and he actually took me to a, a wheelchair basketball practice mm -hmm. when I was still in rehab. That was really cool. I got introduced to that sport very early on, just just really a few months into being a wheelchair user. Mm -hmm. I was, as I mentioned, a someone that was really interested in team sports growing up. At the time, this was back in 1989, 1990. There was really two main sports that kind of dominated our area. One was wheelchair basketball, and the other one was track and field. Mm -hmm. I gravitated immediately to a the team sport. Mm -hmm. I was never interested in, in the individual sports as much. Maybe because I was lazy. I didn't want to go wheel around the block or wheel around the, <laughs> the, the track. Um, but I really loved, you know, the social aspect and being part of a team and, yeah, and for sure. experience competition that way. Never played basketball before. And we also didn't have what was called sledge hockey or para ice hockey in our area. Um, was not well established either then. And so I didn't have an opportunity to try that. So the short story, I started playing wheelchair basketball, um, really liked it. We had a really strong organization locally in Vancouver. BC Wheelchair Basketball is headquartered here. It still is. We had a lot of good trailblazers in, in the sport. Rick Hansen being one of them, Terry Fox mm -hmm. uh, as well before that, that played wheelchair basketball and, and many other uh, great players. Again, being in, in a city like Vancouver with um, a lot of people, uh, a good density of people. There was enough people that, around to have, you know, practices and teams and a, and a league. Yeah. There's one good message right off the bat about para-sport and, and being involved with wheelchair sports. It sure helps when you're in a place that has a lot of athletes want to take part. For sure. And that's because something that people might not know is that a lot of parasports invite people who are not themselves disabled to also come in and participate, right? And I think wheelchair basketball is a prime example of that, where you have a lot of people that are able-bodied, but also participate in the sport, right? 
Absolutely. And so we call it an integrated sport in that regard. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Paralympics in a minute, but um, at the Paralympics, it's not integrated. But in Canada, everywhere up to the Paralympic level, so local club teams, the provincial teams even, are integrated. So able-bodied players can play right alongside someone with a disability. And to us, as wheelchair basketball players, the wheelchair is just a piece of sporting equipment. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as you sit down in it, you're now taking part in this sport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is beneficial in so many ways, primarily in the way that I was describing earlier, that you need athletes, you need players, you need participants to have a sport. Mm -hmm. um, you can't play a team sport if you only have two or three people, <laughs> not one that requires five aside. Yeah. And so particularly for women's sports too, who women wheelchair athletes, para sport athletes are, are fewer and far between compared to the men, um, just based on demographics. Yeah. There's not as many girls and women are injured in the way the men are for whatever reason. Uh, so there's not as many athletes. Mm -hmm. In particular for women, it is very important to be integrated and have a body participation. Talking about that. So you started at the local level. You started to train and play basketball, climbing the ranks then as you do in many other sports from local to provincial to national level. Uh, I should also mention for our audience, if you're interested in looking out more information, Jamie was also recently inducted into the BC Sports Hall of Fame for wheelchair basketball. So congratulations on that. What I did want to get into, though, is how exactly do you determine how to group people up for para sports this is something that people may not know and i think is quite interesting so the classification system as you call it that tells you who can compete against who because people have a variety of disabilities different function so why don't you get into the classification system for para sport and tell us a little bit about what that means sure and, and that's a good segue from the integrated aspect of wheelchair basketball and having able-bodied participants as well the classification system is is paramount to that working comparing myself for instance as i described uh, in the last episode as someone that has very poor trunk function uh, being paralyzed from the chest down having a great deal of impairment physically comparing that to an able-bodied man who can pick up his wheelchair and put it over <laughs> his head and climb stairs and, <laughs> the gym and sit down that that's a marked difference in physical ability. <laughs> so what wheelchair basketball has done, and this is just a brilliant thing that, that happened uh, very early on in the sport, as far as uh, I understand, is they came up with a classification system to give each player a point ranking based on their level of impairment. Okay. And so using myself as an example, I described myself as a T4 paraplegic, paralyzed from the chest down. I am given the lowest point ranking in wheelchair basketball uh, of a one point. Mm -hmm. The body people that uh, we've been talking about, they're given a ranking of 4.5 points. And that's the same as a single leg amputee, for instance. Uh, uh -huh. A single low knee amputee would give, be given a rank of 4.5 as well, because they are no different from an able-bodied person once they sit down in that wheelchair. Yeah, You're not using your legs in the same way, obviously. Often you strap yourself into the chair. They are going to use their legs and hips and certainly their trunk to balance, to stabilize, to propel their wheelchair, but they're going to be no different from the old body person. Yeah. So they're yeah. both given a 4.5 class. Many people who's listening to this show know a little bit about Rick Hansen or have seen him before. He's a two, a 2.0. And, and the, the point system goes in 0.5 increments. So one, 1.5, all the way up to 4.5. So that's just a couple of examples. A, a, a body person or a single leg amputee would be 4.5. Rick Hansen would be a two, I'm a one. <laughs> 
And then what wheelchair basketball does is it gives a total maximum amount of points that any team can have on the floor at one time. I see. Yeah, and it depends a little bit on what of the league you're playing and what level you're playing at. But in the Paralympics, it's 14 points. So, for instance, when I was on the national team, we had a, a lineup that had two 4.5 players, uh, a 2.5 player, and two one-point players. That is 13 and a half points. So we actually played under points quite often, what's called playing under points. Mm-hmm. And it really makes it, you know, an interesting strategic uh, issue for the coaches, for instance. Yes. Maybe one person gets into foul trouble or you want to switch up someone for a different player. Sometimes you'd have to make a, a double switch or even, or, or even three players at once because maybe you don't have a one to swap out for the one-point player that's coming out. Maybe there's a 1.5 player or a two. And maybe you have to swap two players at once. So maybe we take a one and a 4.5 for a two and a three and a half, for instance. Interesting. Okay. And that is how, again, all these people can compete on the floor at the same time. Because quite frankly, if I look at my teammates who are 4.5s, including the legendary Patrick Anderson, who's this Canadian man from Ontario, he's arguably, I think, inarguably the the greatest wheelchair basketball player ever and leading to our team to be a bit of a dynasty in, in wheelchair basketball. I was fortunate enough to be on teams that won two gold medals and a silver medal at the Paralympics. And then Pat went on after me to another one and won another gold medal in London. My last Paralympics was in Beijing in 2008. So, but if you look at what Pat can do on the floor and what I can do on the floor, they're they're vastly different. He's a 4.5, I'm a one. He sits higher because he has better stability. Yeah, yeah. He moves faster because he can push his chair with his trunk muscles as well as his, his arms in, in ways that I can't. And it's just, again, all around more more function. Interesting. Interesting. That's super cool. I never realized that that's how it worked. And I mean, as you say, that seems really functional, a really uh, good way of putting a lot of various people on the floor together. Um, but yeah, not something people think about, I guess. We can also integrate the sport in another way, and that's through gender as well. Ah. And so, again, below the Paralympic level, at, at the club team level, often women will play with men on the same teams. Mm. And as is, um, I think, experienced in, in many sports there's often win- women's classes or women's events and men's events because women may not be as, as strong or as fast at the highest levels so what we do with your basketball is you're given an extra point on the floor for instance so let's say you have a one woman on the floor in an integrated basketball team you'd get to play 15 points instead of 14 points and we're not talking about skill then that's very important we're not talking about one's inherent skill yeah, how good yeah. they are, how well do they shoot a basketball, for instance? What what, are, what is their skill level? We're talking about their kind of ceiling for function. Yeah, can yeah, they yeah. can they reach down to the floor and pick up a basketball with two hands and sit back up again? Well, yes or no. Pat can, I cannot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's not a skill issue. That's a that's a function issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think this is controversial to say, but can a woman bench press as much as a man in in any given two people? Right. In in general, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a just acknowledgement that there are differences and, and there's differences in people's classes and there's differences in people's uh, impairments in the impaired sport. Yeah. And, and I think the International Paralympic Association, they, they do kind of almost make an analogy between the classification system and say boxing, for instance, which has weight classes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. gender classes. Yeah. Women, women, men fight men, men who weigh 200 pounds, box men who weigh 200 pounds and men who weigh 130 pounds, box 
many weigh 130 pounds because yeah, of the, yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it's sure. very similar to that. Cool, very interesting. And do all adaptive sports do something like that, or is that something unique to wheelchair basketball? So classification is is very sport specific. So my understanding is all para sport has a classification system, but sometimes actually there's only a single class. So para hockey would be an example of that, formerly called sledge hockey, now called para hockey, which is obviously a great sport in Canada, being a hockey nation. Yeah. The the, the class in para hockey is that you have to have a, an impairment in the lower part of your body. Ah, I see. But it doesn't distinguish between, say, myself in basketball as a one and a class two or 4.5. Okay. What you'll find is that most of the, you know, Team Canada members on the national team are lower limb amputees. They all have full trunk function. Uh, many of them can walk. And so it's 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 a different level of sport in that regard in, in the sense of, of the function and the fact that it's a single class. So that can, as you say, maybe present a, a barrier to some people moving on to the, to the highest levels of that particular sport. Yeah, I think right? it'd be very rare and um, I'm not sure if there's anybody with my level of disability on the on the on the national uh, sledge hockey or para ice hockey team mm -hmm. in fact i know when i when i played mm -hmm. and i have played um, a little bit of para ice hockey now over the years it's it's a bigger sport now in vancouver than it was when i was first injured i know the high level players that can compete at the national level they they, they take it easy on someone like me if they're going to hammer you into the boards you can't stabilize my <laughs> trunk and, and protect yeah. myself in the same way that they can and so they're generally pretty good about, uh, you know, not not running you into the boards in the same way that they might uh, with their own uh, teammates or, or or competitors at, at the national team level. Interesting. I actually, I haven't watched a lot of para ice hockey myself. I was actually now, I had spoken to Maggie recently, who was also on the show as a previous guest. And we had a conversation off camera, so to speak, about para ice hockey. And so something I was looking into, but uh, they get as physical as, as real hockey, hey? It's full contact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's uh, that sounds that sounds interesting. I'm definitely uh, I'll be it's, looking it's, into that. It's fast and physical. <laughs> so, for someone who might be looking at the Paralympics, who might be either an aspiring Paralympian or just interested in entering the world of adaptive sports, what might that uh, trajectory look like for someone? Is it pretty similar to how you would do it in, a, in a, any other sport? What does that kind of look like? I suspect it's pretty similar with the caveats that we all face in, in in all various aspects of society that we talked about in part one of this conversation that sometimes it's going to be more difficult. Yeah. If you you live in a city like Vancouver or the lower mainland um, of British Columbia, it's it's relatively straightforward. There there are grid organizations that are easy to find and they they run programs and it's really a matter of just showing up for, up to the program and, and and usually they even have the equipment for you the, the wheelchairs that you might first use to start out in mm -hmm. when you when you start playing it a little bit more and you want to become a, a avid regular participant you're going to want to get your own wheelchair that's dialed in optimized just for you yeah but at the beginning the good organizations with the right amount of people will have the equipment as well so you can try it out and then you join a club you know, a, a local area and go out to practices and show up and get put on teams and start competing. And mm -hmm. again, the bigger sports and the bigger um, population centers have leagues and several times a week that you can get together and do this. And so you start progressing through the clubs and often there's provincial teams in your 
whatever sport you might want to participate in and hopefully you make a provincial team and you can kind of keep on building that way. Yeah. I'll add some information to the show notes, links to some of these clubs that might exist in, in different areas, especially I'll, I'll post them for BC because we live here. But yeah, I'll, I'll add some information about that so people can see what programs do exist and, and you know what those sports might look like at those levels. You were mentioning earlier the equipment that you have designed for your own chair, stuff like the, the elevation seat. <laughs> are those kinds of things banned at the uh, uh on the rink or, or on the floor <laughs> you can't boost up in your seat and take a, a half court shot no we've, i have thought about it um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it would not be a uh, allowed um allowed thing there are there are there are pretty strict rules about how high your chair can be and a, a lot to do with safety for instance so mm. that you're not using unsafe equipment and, and a lot to do with, again, keeping a level playing field for everybody. Yeah. And the seat height in wheelchair basketball is pro probably the best example where there's a maximum seat height you can have mm. uh, and a maximum size of wheel you can have as well, for instance. So you can't have, um, you know, someone making these huge wheels, for instance, that would make you higher. <laughs> monster truck um, tires. Yeah, monster truck tires. It's really interesting, actually, as I progressed through my, my career and my experience with wheelchair basketball, when I first started playing, we just used our everyday chairs. There was ah, no okay. such thing okay. at the time as a wheelchair basketball chair. Of course, there, there was a racing chair if you wanted to do track or road racing, uh -huh. but there was no wheelchair basketball chair. That changed really quickly, actually. Uh, it just took a few years till they started to become specialized uh, chairs for, for, for basketball and tennis and wheelchair rugby and all these other sports now all have their own chairs. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's just one other question here that I thought would be interesting to dive into, just to clarify those distinctions for people, because a term that's thrown out often, you know, in media, especially older media, it's kind of thrown out around in a you know pejorative fashion. But the difference between the Special Olympics and the Paralympics, because I think people maybe conflate the two sometimes. So what what is the difference there? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and as you said, that people often do confuse the two things and. So interesting enough, the Special Olympics, as far as I know, is actually the biggest sport organization in the world. It's it's really big. Uh, and one of the reasons it is so big is that its mandate is all about participation. And it's it's a, a sporting event and a sporting um, ecosystem that anybody can participate in if they fit obviously the criteria for the Special Olympics. And that's it can be physical disability, but primarily intellectual disabilities. And, and so it's, it's an org organization that's all about participation. Whereas the Paralympics is about competition and, and elite sports. So it's very much analogous to the Olympics. Yeah. And interesting enough, and I didn't know this for the longest time, I think I was a Paralympian before I even knew this, is the para in Paralympics is, many people think it stands for paraplegic, like some sort of disability, <laughs> but it actually stands for parallel. So it's, it's a sporting event that's parallel to the Olympics. Yeah. Or people with physical disabilities. And it's geared more towards, again, competition and elite sport. And so one, one thing you'll find in the Paralympics is that doping happens, cheating happens in the Paralympics, just as it does in the Olympics, which really? you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of a funny example that I'm using to maybe distinguish it between that and the Special Olympics. But it, it, it does, you know, the winning is very important in the Paralympics. Mm. And it's different mindset. It's, so as I, as I mentioned, it is parallel to the Olympics. It happens in the same venues, mm -hmm. in the same cities as the Olympics. 
and again, it is a different reason that it exists. Yeah. And so the Special Olympics, are they also integrated then? They encourage participation from able-bodied players alongside other players? Or uh, as far as you know, maybe you're, maybe you're not super familiar, but... I'm not super familiar with it, but I do know that what, what they one thing they do do, because it is intentionally designed so that everybody can participate, is that they do distinguish between skill levels so that people of a certain of the same skill level will play against each other okay and so much like we do classification for function they do it for skill okay okay that would be another i think way that things are are different i think yeah at the paralympics you're just expected to be at elite of skill for your function but that function is more important to differentiate whereas at the special olympics it's about grouping people who can you know reasonably play together right yeah and can have a nice equitable game together yeah Perfect. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that clarification. I think that'll give some good information for our audience here to understand what that means, what it involves uh, getting into it. Actually, just in this past episode, in episode 12, I had on a friend of mine, uh, James Konecki, who is a blind para-athlete. He's vision impaired and he is playing now for UVic. He's a rower. And he's done a variety of, of sports as well in the past, baseball as well. You know, maybe I'll, I'll definitely have him back on the show at some point. And so now I think this will give our audience a great opportunity to understand a bit more what it means to get into parasport and, and how that might look for people. With that, I think that pretty much is taking us to the end of our time together. So I wanted to thank you again for uh, coming on for this special episode, taking a bit of time to speak to me. In terms of a key takeaway for this uh, part two of the episode, I would like to refer the audience back to what I said in part one about sharing accessible information in terms of beginning the school year. And I will also be adding, as I mentioned, plenty of information into this episode description regarding parasports, how you can get involved, links to organizations and all that kind of thing in hopes of encouraging students or educators to share that with each other and to be able to get out and participate in sport because it really is a great opportunity for people. So once again, thank you very much, Dr. Borisov, for coming on the show and speaking to me. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here.